2016 saw the rise of the term fake news. Used to label propaganda, hoaxes, and disinformation, there has been some confusion about what exactly fake news entails. Organizations like ProPublica, which supports and produces in-depth reporting, have launched efforts to help consumers identify fake news. Researchers at Indiana University have also joined the effort launching Hoaxy. The project tracks the sharing of links to fake news across the internet by collecting public tweets, linking to particular organizations or sources of information. Hoaxy is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Our regular Regular panelists are Department of Statistics Chair John Baylor and Department of Media, Journalism, and Film Chair Richard Campbell. Today's guest is Phil Menzer, Professor of Informatics and Computer Science at Indiana University, as well as the Director of the Center for Complex Networks and Systems Research. He also helped develop Hoaxy at IU. Thanks for being here this afternoon, Phil. Thank you for having me. Just to start off the conversation, how did Hoaxy come about? The research behind it has been going on for several years. We are interested in the spread of information and misinformation on social media. So we build lots of models and theories about what are the factors that may affect uh, their spread and their virality. And also the competition for our limited attention between fake news or other kinds of misinformation and fact checks or debunking information. So to do to verify and validate these models, we, we have to collect data. And so we started collecting data about people who share links to either fake news websites or fact-checking websites or hoax conspiracies and so on. So initially it was mainly to sort of as part of our research to, to validate our models. But then we realized that this data might also be useful for others, other researchers, some reporters, the general public. And so we started working on a public-facing service, which eventually became uh, the Hoaxy website, Mm -hmm. and also an API, which is a set of tools that people can use to programmatically access the data that we are collecting. And so we designed the the site and this set of tools to make it easy for people to study, analyze, and visualize how misinformation and fact-checks compete and how they spread through the social network from person to person who are the main influential spreaders and what are the temporal dynamics of these of these events. And so you can observe this directly um, on our website now. You, you use the, expre- the term model and you use the term network. So, <laughs> yes. so uh, if, if we could just take a step back and, and have you talk a little bit about why is it that a social network has implicitly embedded in it the idea of some structure, some data structure. And then what, you know, can you talk a little bit about that and then also the types of data that might be collected on that? Very good question. So, in fact, I should also uh, say you you, you mentioned uh, models. Of course, in different disciplines, the word model means completely different things. So the way that statisticians might use the word model or mathematicians or physicists or biologists are completely different things. When I was talking about models, I was referring to agent-based models that are basically simple theories of how, in this case, information may spread from person to person, where you imagine that uh, there is a network, a graph connecting users, social media users, according to some rules. And then people follow some simple rules to pay attention to different things that they are exposed to on this network. So the structure of the network 
is very important. Who you are connected to determines what you see. So we've actually spent quite a bit of effort studying the structure of the networks that are induced by the exchange of information on social media. We have been collecting data from Twitter for several years, since 2010. We collect a sample of about 10% of all public tweets. And we have all of this data uh, stored on a cluster and actually available uh, for researchers to use. This is a different project. It's not hoaxy. It's mm -hmm. something else called the Observative on Social Media, also known as Trudy. So we can look at the people who are talking about some subject, for example, uh, some uh, hashtag on Twitter. Uh, let's say the name of a presidential candidate, for example, who's talking about uh, Obama or who's talking about uh, Trump, etc. And so you can um, build a network where the nodes uh, are the accounts, the Twitter accounts, and then edges between these accounts represent how information about that topic, let's say, for example, about a hashtag, spreads from person to person. So, for example, you may post a comment or a tweet about Obama. Uh, I don't know, I like Obama, or Obama is a Muslim, or whatever, and uh, hashtag Obama, and then I retweet it. Well, if I retweet it, it means that that information has passed from you to me. And so we can represent that with an edge, a link, connecting the node of your account to the node of my account. Now, do this across millions and millions of uh, tweets and you get these networks. And when you visualize these networks or when you analyze them mathematically, you see that there is very interesting structure. They're not random networks. Um, you are much more likely to be connected to other people that are similar to you, that have similar opinions to yours, uh, political tendencies maybe, who live in the same geographical area. And these are well-known things about social networks. There is a word for it. It's homophily, right? Mm -hmm. People like to be connected to other people who are similar to them. And that's very natural. We, we've, we've observed this in social networks for, you know, for a century. Uh, but, of course, in social media like Twitter and Facebook, um, which are used to spread information and, and some people use it as their main source of news, this homophily also means that what you see is based on what is shared by your friends and your friends tend to be like you. And so the view that you have of the world, the view that you have of the news and the events and opinions is very, very biased. And so understanding the structure of these networks, the community structure of these networks, the clusters, uh, some people call it the echo chambers um, in which you find yourselves, uh, helps us understand how opinions can be affected by the, the use of these social media, and also in some cases manipulated by people who abuse social media specifically for, for this purpose. Can you talk a little bit about, in your own work, how the news media have covered your work, what they get right, what they get wrong, what makes you mad about what they, about <laughs> what they get yes. wrong? I mean, we, we feel like we have a strong obligation here to help our journalism students tell stories about numbers, and it's a challenge for many of them. So maybe talk a little bit about your own experience since you, I know you've been covered by lots of major national media. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I have to say that in the great majority of cases, I feel very lucky. I think we've had a lot of really good coverage. Um, most, I would say Almost all of the reporters that I ever talked to are good and professional and they do the research and they write mostly accurate things. Occasionally there is some small inaccuracies, but that's 
more than normal. So I actually admire, um, you know, journalists and reporters and and media professional a lot. Unfortunately, there are also some that perhaps we shouldn't even call them journalists or reporters, but there are people in the media world who are not necessarily interested in really sort of talking about facts, but um, they may ha- uh, propagate stuff with a very, very strong bias. So we have also, unfortunately, uh, have to deal with some of those. And so those would be the sort of the negative experience. Um, there is specifically a period of time uh, in 2014 prior to the midterm elections. Um, so let's say between August and November, in which we were targeted uh, by uh, I, what I would call an organized uh, misinformation campaign uh, that attempted to depict our research um, in a very bad light. And in fact, it was mostly based on completely fabricated nonsense. Mm. But um, it spread like fire and it went viral. And of course, it spread in a portion of the of the social network, of the social media that of, of inhabited by people who were predisposed to believe Mm -hmm. to that sort of misinformation. So we experienced firsthand sort of the spread of misinformation about our own research. And uh, it was pretty bad because we were the target of a lot of hate uh, messages and mail. and, And of course, it was not nice to see our own research completely misrepresented on TV by one channel in particular. (laughs) So, so in that case, um, that has not been pleasant. How did you counter that? We tried different things. So this started with a with an article in a hyper, what I would call it a hyper biased political blog, which took a sentence from an abstract of an NSF grant that we had that we had um, several years ago, and took that sentence out of context and tried to make it sound like it was something terrible mm-hmm. and ominous. And um, we later realized that this particular blog did this systematically. So they basically come through NSF uh, abstracts and then looking for sentences that could be taken out of context to make it sound like it was silly research. Mm-hmm. And then they would an article, write an article where the title was the feds spend X amount of dollars to do Y. Yes. And the idea was to show that the research is biased or research is silly or that the federal government wastes research funds on on silly projects. And these are all taken out of context, of course. And, uh, but, um, but the result is that uh, people who, you know, pay attention to these sources get the idea that, uh, you know, that the federal government is uh, crazy and wasting taxpayers' money and so on. So this particular story, the title, because there was a sentence in the abstract of our grant that was talking about uh, broader impact, so things that our work could be applied to in the future. And of course, we were talking about a system that we wanted to build uh, which we now have built, it's called the Observatory on Social Media, to collect data from Twitter and help study how information spreads from person to person. And since we had observed some abuses of social media, such as social bots and astroturfing, in our broader impact statement, we said, if we understand how these abuses work, uh, then in the future, this understanding could lead to tools that will help preserve free speech. 
because of course these tools can be used to suppress free speech, mm -hmm. right? To make right. it look like there's people uh, talking about something where it's not true or make it look like some people are popular when they're not or having automatic trolls that attacked and insult people. So these are expressions of su suppression of speech. But this article made it sound like we were specifically targeting conservative uh, speech or conservative mm. users and somehow that we had the magic power of suspending their accounts and that this was a secret program of the federal government, specifically of the Obama administration, <laughs> to spy on citizens. Of course, this was completely fake and fabricated, but it picked up like wildfire. It was on Fox News um, and eventually it escalated all the way to a formal investigation by the chair of the uh, House Committee on Science and Technology. So how do we react to it? Well, we put out information, posted on our web research website, on our blog, explaining that this wasn't true. But it didn't really matter. Um, those who, you know, those who were spreading the misinformation were not necessarily interested in accuracy. They just wanted to get people riled up. I mean, within a couple of days, this was debunked. There was an article on the Columbia Journalism Report. There was an article in a in a UK newspaper. Um, we had an, an interview in the Washington Post. Uh, so it was widely debunked. It was pretty clear to anybody who wanted to look at it that it wasn't true. Uh, there were two articles in Science. But the ones who were spreading the misinformation, they wouldn't interview us. They wouldn't call us, right? Yeah. They, uh, so it was, it was, that's why I say that it was really a, an organized campaign. Yes. Uh, it wasn't just a mistake. And also, the stories that they were telling us about our research kept changing over time. So we would say, well, it's not true that, I don't know, they were building a secret database for the federal government. And then two days later, there would be a new article that says that we were collaborating with the FBI to track people posting memes, image memes, and report them to, you know, to the government or, or something like that. Or that we were getting $100 million dollars <laughs> to to do this work for the federal government it's again it, 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 they just got crazier and crazier and so it was hard to keep up of course the university helped us and we had some statements released about that and several of the professional organizations and scientific organizations uh, for computer science math etc published uh, a letter uh, indicating you know that this was all false and and it was but um, it just kept going and going until the elections. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, fake news and social media. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelist, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our guest is Phil Menzer, Professor of Informatics and Computer Science at Indiana University and co-creator of the Hoaxy Project. Phil, maybe you could take a moment and sort of explain what it is Hoaxy can do and what it can't do, right? Because it's linked to this idea of fake news. But from what I understand is that you're not scrubbing the content of tweets to understand if they're fake. You're just really looking at sort of how they map across a network. Yes, that's right. Uh, Hoaxy is definitely not a fact-checking tool. Um, I want to make that clear. We are, you know, we're not media specialists. We're not journalists, and we don't. We're not able um, to look at a claim and say whether it's true or not. I mean, we don't have the expertise. We could do it by hand, but certainly we can. We couldn't do it for the millions of of claims that we track. Um, so we don't 
do that. Instead, uh, what we do is we allow you to visualize how claims are spreading from person to person, how they are going viral. So we rely on lists of websites that are generated by some well-respected media sources and fact-checking organizations. Um, these include both fact-checking sites, you know, places like Snopes and PolitiFact and factcheck.org and so on, as well as uh, a bunch of sites that are often indicated by fact-checking organizations as posting claims that are not verified or that are fake news or that are uh, conspiracies or things of that sort. So <clears throat> we just, uh, we do... Um, go to these websites and ex and read the articles that are posted there so that you could basically search through them. So that's the first piece of our tool. It works like a search engine. You put in a few keywords and you find all the claims, the articles that are written that match your query. Then you can choose to, tr to look at some of them more in depth. Uh, and perhaps you might find some articles from fake news websites and some articles debunking information from fact-checking websites. And then you can visualize how those particular article or links to those articles are spreading through Twitter from person to person. So you, you see a network and a node represents an account and the size of that node represents how influential that account is in terms of being mm -hmm. retweeted or quoted, you know, basically spreading that information, whether it's a claim, a valid claim, or an unverified claim, or fact-checking, and so on. And, and the edges, like I said before, represents people tweeting, or retweeting, or quoting, or mentioning each other. And we use two colors to, uh, to represent whether the links are on websites that are known fact-checking sites, or whether they are these sites um, uh, from this list that we got that um, are often posting claims that get debunked. With the spread of viruses, when we think about health, we, we often consider, are, are there inoculations? Can a vaccine mm -hmm. be developed? I mean, is, is there a, an equivalent of trying to develop a digital vaccine to try to help us uh, inhibit the spread of such, such misinformation viruses? Very interesting question. Uh, I just, a couple of days ago, read an article. It was a report, I think it was a press release, about an article which I put on my to-do to-do to-read <laughs> list, so I haven't read it yet, so I can't speak about it in detail. But basically, it was a study done by some researchers uh, who have tried to think of it as a as a as a vaccine. So they showed, from what I recall about the study, they had a set of people to whom they showed some reliable information and some misinformation, and then they just looked at whether the certainty that these people had in trusting the accurate information, how much it was, it decreased when they were exposed to misinformation. And then they compared this with another group that was sort of inoculated with a sort of information virus, where before sh being shown this accurate or inaccurate information, they were told sometimes there are uh, articles that are meant to confuse or to post fake information. And then the second group, according to the study, their trust in the accurate information did not decrease as much when they were exposed to misinformation. So who knows, maybe this idea might work. I think that it's probably just the beginning and more research is needed. But more in general, there is a lot of work that needs to be done to understand the role of fact-checking. 
And there is some contradictory uh, evidence uh, in the literature about fact-checking. There is some work that has showed that fact-checking can backfire. Mm. It can have the opposite effect to what you, uh, th- what you expect. Not only that people don't change their mind, but that their previous beliefs based on misinformation may actually be reinforced <clears throat> by being exposed to related information, even if it is debunking earlier misinformation that they had been exposed to. And then there are other studies that show that instead there are cases in which uh, being exposed to fact-checking helps move opinions at least a little bit. Uh, so I think this is an open area for research, and we would very much like to explore it. In fact, we are in an ongoing conversation with some colleagues who work in the cognitive uh, sciences mm-hmm. and and also uh, sort of uh, social psychology. <clears throat> and we would like to work with them to come up with some both experiments and models to help understand what are the conditions under which fact-checking may work um, or it may not? Again, there is there is work, there is literature in this field, but I think that there is still a lot of, uh, of work to do to really understand um, what can be done in terms of fact-checking. Of course, we might think of other ways to mitigate misinformation. Perhaps if you're not exposed to misinformation at all, mm-hmm. that might be also good, but at the same time, we don't want to censor right? Information. But fact-checking is one particular approach where we simply say, well, that's not true. Well, it's not clear whether doing that always helps. Or maybe there are different ways of doing it. Uh, There are articles that suggest that if you just say something is not true, it is counterproductive. Whereas if you simply state something that is true that contradicts perhaps previous misinformation that a person had been exposed to, then maybe that might be more effective. But I think we're very far from having a clear understanding and an agreement or a consensus of of when fact-checking works and how it works. Because the effects are also very different from person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's a very open area of research. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion considers how scientists study the way that misinformation travels across the Internet. You're talking about uh, the the fact-checking, and I mean, one of the things that struck me, particularly in this last election, was how often fact-checking sites were targeted as biased, you know, that this was part of the fake news circulation. Uh, so the same thing that you experienced, where disinformation campaigns were aimed at discrediting scientists, uh, legitimate journalists. I mean, in this era of alternative facts, how do you, com- how do you combat this uh, when your own work is sort of exposed to this disinformation or the work, the legitimate work of fact-checking journalists is under siege? Yes, uh, it's, a scary, <laughs> yes. it's a scary situation that we find ourselves in. I don't have a good answer. I agree that it is extremely concerning. Uh, you might say it's not surprising if somebody are using are trying to manipulate public opinion in some way, whether it is through social bots or fake news websites or or in any other way. Then, of course, when they are being accused of being fake news, um, why wouldn't they try and and use that against their their accusers? And they may be successful at creating confusion in people. This is a well known technique. It has mm-hmm. been used for a long time. You don't really have to convince people of something fake being true. It's enough to just create doubt. Because many people, of course, do not have the time and resources and interest in digging through things and you know, spending a lot of time reading and making up their own mind. 
they just hear things casually here and there. They maybe look at a headline that flows on their on their iPhone or or uh, or something that they hear on the radio in the car, and they don't spend time to actually do the research. Is this true or is this not true? And so, of course, people can take advantage of that uh, to create that confusion. And it is very sad because it is creating huge challenges for scientists. Uh, scientists are having a hard time right now communicating their work and possibly the important implications for policy, whether it's you know things related to climate or or to pollution or anything you want because if there is an interest who ha- you know somebody who has an interest um, that counter the evidence in science they can just attack science and we've observed that among some politicians unfortunately and um, I, I'm not exactly sure um, my hope is that most people do not enjoy being deceived mm-hmm. they don't know that they are deceived so we need to figure out ways, effective ways to communicate and to let people realize uh, when they are being deceived. Because probably once they do realize it, then they will be more careful about what they pay attention to and what you know whom they believe. But the technology that we have now, uh, especially social media, were not designed with the goal of helping people protect themselves from misinformation. They were designed helping people get engaged. So that uh, you know, you will you're more likely to see a post that you're likely to interact with, or to click on, or mm-hmm. engage with, or comment, and or you know, or from somebody that uh, you like, or from a close friend, or from somebody that you've interacted with before. And unfortunately, all of that, because of the echo chamber phenomenon that I was describing before, this homophily that leads us to being surrounded with people with very similar opinions to ours. All of that is conducive to us being tricked. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm a liberal, I'm more likely to be duped into believing a news that tells me that some Republican person is evil. And likewise, if I'm a conservative, I'm more likely to believe some piece of fake news that tells me that some progressive person is evil. So we're not duped by our adversary. We are duped by uh, fake news that would be believed by our friends. Yeah. So the structure of social media may make things a little bit worse right now. And exactly the extent to which that happens is something that we need to study and understand better. But at this point, it would seem that, that our reliance on social media is making us more vulnerable. And therefore, we are more confused, we are less informed, and therefore people can take advantage of that and manipulate the medium so it is a, a worrisome situation right now, for sure. You know, when, when you talk about some of these ideas, I've, I've read you describe things as the attention economy, mm-hmm. and that there's this competition for, for our, our, our hearts and our minds and our thoughts. Uh, so I wonder if in, a, in, that, in that setting, there's this, this need to find who's, a, who's going to be our trusted curator of, of information. <laughs> you know, who are we going to, to, to follow? I mean, there was, historically, there were very few sources that we might plug into to get news, that we were counting on them to, to process and curate. You know, mm-hmm. so, so how, does that, how can that work now, or, or can it work now, given this, this broad social network in which you know, you're saying a, a vast majority of news is being encountered? Ah, you're asking really good questions. <laughs> uh, it, is, it is certainly true and has become more true in the last few years that we, as we are inundated with more information, the scarce... Uh, the scarce good 
is our attention because we're not capable of, of uh, digesting all the stuff that gets posted, for example. And that is the result of our shift from one too many platforms or broadcast platforms like traditional media, TV, newspapers, and so on to the web or social networks where it's more of a many-to-many -many model. It has lowered hugely the cost of producing information. There is a lot of good about that, right? Because now anybody has the power to, to produce and broadcast information, and there's a lot of examples where that is a wonderful thing. Imagine, for example, people who should live videos, uh, and so we have witness accounts of situations that uh, until recently we didn't have. And so these are uncovering some things th of which we were unaware. So I think that there's lots of ways in which this is a good thing. However, like any technology, <laughs> it comes with good and bad. It comes with advantages and perils. And so the bad here is that as everybody becomes a producer, the consumers, of course, we our the amount of attention that we can dedicate to whatever activity, reading news or getting informed, etc. Well, that stays the same. And so how do we deal with this huge information flow? Some people call it information overload. Social media try to do that for us, right? They try to act as filters. And that's why we see news from our friends. Mm -hmm. But now we know that that's a very biased method that exposes, exposes us to a very biased set of sources of information. So it comes with its own uh, disadvantages. And, you know, concurrently with the emergence of social media and new technologies, of course, we've seen the decline of traditional media so that, you know, a lot of sort of the traditional broadcasters are struggling economically. So people don't trust them. And so at the same time in which people are trusting less uh, sources of information that actually follow traditional ethics in making sure that they don't spread misinformation. At the same time, we it is very hard for us to uh, tell the difference between a trusted source and untrusted source. If you look at a, if you see something on your Facebook screen or your Twitter screen, your information goes to the headline or maybe who shared it, not mm -hmm. so much. What is the source? Now, of course, these things could change. And in fact, we are happy to do research and work with technology platforms to help figure out ways that we could help people understand what is the source of, of a piece of information. But the way things are now, the major mediators of information or curators or editors, as you were saying earlier, are mostly gone. And we don't really have a good replacement for them. We have popular Twitter accounts and popular... Facebook accounts, but there are plenty of sources of unreliable information, even fake news or misleading information that are extremely popular. Because people, the popularity on the social platforms is not just the result of accuracy, but of yeah. many other factors like mm -hmm. your own political opinions, for example. And so this is one of the things that we are in fact studying something interesting or popular, how more people generate information in that area, even if they have nothing new to propose. If, you know, if everybody's talking about some event and you're a fake news uh, source, then it's easy for you to just generate some fake news on that topic. It will get attention because everybody's interested in that topic, mm -hmm. right? And then, of course, you can make money out of ads or whatever right. it is the reason why you're doing this. So people exploit the attention economy for this kind of manipulation. Our research also is showing that 
the more you're overwhelmed with information and the more limited attention you have, the more likely the system is going to help unreliable or poor quality information go viral. Even assuming that each individual prefers to share reliable information or high quality information. So this is something that our models predict. The interesting part is, again, we're not assuming that people want to share misinformation. Everybody's trying to, you know, for example, you look at 10 things on your feed and then maybe share one. Well, maybe if instead of looking at 10, you had looked at 20, you might have found something that tells you that that thing was fake, right? right. Yeah. Or a more reliable source on the same topic. But because you only look at 10 or 5 or 3, you're more likely to share something that is not accurate. Thank you for spending uh, time with us today talking about this. I think we could probably talk about this for another half hour uh, if we have the time. And good luck with sure. Hoaxie and Truthy in the future. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. It's a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. Stay tuned to keep following us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.